Good evening, podcast listeners, and welcome to episode nine of the Meg Players podcast. Um, we are going to be focusing tonight on uh, the Wars of the Roses and specifically uh, the Battle of Bosworth. We'll also talk about the wider history and we will look at armies of the period, not of um, After that, we're going to be having a preview of this weekend's tournament, uh, which is Cross and Crescent up in Stockport. And we're unashamedly excited about this tournament, our first real big tournament of the year, where we'll all be together in one hall and there'll be a bar. Um, as Robin said, only two sleeps. So uh, we'll make some wild predictions about the outcome and who will podium at the tournament. And we're making a commitment to do our next podcast about that tournament, about the lists, about how the lists were used. And with the blessing of the players and the tournament organisers, we hope to be able to publish all the lists that are at the tournament on the blog. It'll be very interesting. Um, so, as I always say, without further ado, let's crack on. Good evening, everyone. So I'm here with Ray and Nick. And this evening we are talking about the Battle of Bosworth, or alternatively Bosworth Field, because uh, many of you may not know that in history terms, a field was actually somewhere where a battle took So it should either be the Battle of Bosworth or Bosworth Field. Um, the reason we've chosen this is because on Sunday, uh, it was the Society of Ancients Battle Day, which was held at Shaw House in Newbury. Uh, at that event, 45 different wargamers took part. Uh, playing on 11 different tables with 10 different rule sets, uh, all recreating the Battle of Bosworth. Uh, and one of those tables was um, led by myself, and there were six six of us refighting the Battle of Bosworth. Uh, and that included the Society of Ancients President and Meg Wargamer Simon Elliott, uh, Adrian and Rob from the Luton Club, myself uh, and Ian Newell uh, from Portsmouth Way. So it was a good time. Uh, just to give the game away, the battle um, turned out to be a, a conclusive victory for Henry Tudor, uh, who absolutely smashed the flank of uh, the Yorkist army. Um, so uh, let's, however, um, start by talking a bit about the uh, history very briefly. So um, Battle of Bosworth is widely regarded as the final major battle of the Wars of the Roses. Um, if you decide that the Wars of the Roses is the conflict between the Lancastrian and Yorkist dynasties that start in 1455, um, it probably, the conflict between the two dynasties sort of ends around 43 with the suppression of the last series um, although it didn't completely get extinguished until Henry VIII uh, executed the last of the claimants to um, the Yorkist line. Uh, so uh, in 1485 Richard III had been on the throne for uh, three years um, Henry Tudor was backed by the French king, um, 
and with a force of French uh, uh, and Scottish uh, lands in Wales, rallies support from uh, Welsh locals and marches through England. Uh, Richard III raises troops, um, moves to Leicester um, and then uh, marches down from Leicester and the two armies uh, uh, meet each other in the Northamptonshire countryside, um, not too far away from Bosworth. Um, so um, that's essentially the, the, the situation that leads to the battle. Um, the forces involved, the numbers are very unclear. Um, it seems likely that Richard had the larger force um, than Henry, but um, uh, Richard's problem was that the he was also um, facing forces commanded by the Stanley family, uh, Lord Stanley and Sir William Stanley, and they well, depending on where you believe, they either had already committed themselves wholeheartedly to the cause and were holding off only because their relative Lord Strange was actually being held by Richard under the threat of execution if the Stanleys didn't join him, um, or that they, you can argue that perhaps the Stanleys were just waiting to see how the uh, fortunes of battle flowed before committing themselves wholeheartedly to one side or the other. Um, but Richard loses patience with the Stanleys and does issue the order to execute Strain, but his executioners actually take pity on him and he actually survived. Um, before, the night before the battle, um, Henry's forces and Richard's seem to be um, some five to ten miles apart. Um, the um, fascinating thing is that for most of the period of history following um, the battle, the battlefield um, is reported as being in the wrong place. Um, in 1618, there are a series of maps produced, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the cartographer, but they actually show what has subsequently turned out to be the exact location. However, in the 18th century, uh, a chap, um, oh, again, I've the name, prepared this a bit better, um, basically, he uses local hearsay and gets the um, location of the battle wrong, um, putting it uh, near Ambien Hill, where the um, current visitor centre for the um, Battle of Bosworth is, uh, is actually built. Um, the problem is that, having said this is where the battle is, the Ordnance Survey then marked this as the location of the battle and survey maps. Uh, produced from then until 20, basically 10 or 11. Um, and so all the subsequent historians basically get the location and subsequently the movements of the battle completely wrong. Um, it turns out when they did archaeological surveys in the, uh, I think, 2009, um, they actually locate the battlefield as being essentially around uh, the old Roman road known as Fen Lane, which runs uh, sort of east-west, um, just about three miles south of Ambien Hill. Um, and so it is largely from the archaeology 
that um, the location of the battle was down there. It's an interesting uh, battlefield in the sense that uh, they found, I think at latest count is 35 um, cannonballs um, and a significant amount of shot um, from, uh, from the battlefield. So we know roughly the positions of the artillery. Um, what is less clear is how the two battle lines were oriented. Um, the uh, archae battlefield archaeologist Glenn Ford and uh, historian Anne Cleavy basically believe the orientation was east-west, so that Henry was west-facing east and Richard's army was east-facing west. Um, this assumes that the artillery was actually um, placed in front of the armies before uh, they engaged. Um, the alternative view, and the one I actually think has more credibility, is that the armies were oriented north-south with um, Richard's army to the north and Henry's army to the south, um, and Henry's uh, right flank anchored on a marsh um, that is now currently a, a small aerodrome. Um, the arguments for this is that the artillery were actually deployed on the flanks, um, and there's some evidence in the chronicles that the French and Scottish were on the left flank because they were actually to stay away from the Royalist artillery. Um, and there's also reference to the fact that the sun was behind the Tudor army. Now that would, that would be okay for an east-west oration if the battle was fought very late in the day. The battle occurred on 22nd of August, so 1485. So in fact, we're up to our anniversary of the next few. Um, but the, the problem is we know that the battle wasn't for the day and therefore a north-south or in more sense if statement that the sun was behind the is to make sense. So um, coming on to the make recreation for this battle, um, I, not being constrained by the usual competition points limits, um, I actually built two forces um, based around what I thought the armies might um, uh, be like. And I think uh, we will follow the usual pattern, Nick, and post these lists on your um, blog, path, blog um to support the podcast. Indeed, indeed we will. Good. So let's look at the army of Henry Tudor first. Um, the, um, the armies of this time still are primarily a combination of uh, longbowmen and billmen. Um, you, uh, within the Meg army lists, we have um, retinue troops who are generally uh, form troops and average, and we tend to have uh, uh, poorer quality troops or variants. So with the Tudor army, the, uh, as well as retinue and billmen, uh, we also have Welsh longbowmen and Welsh spearmen. So the Welsh are unprotected, um, but still average. And the spearmen I classified as the short spear, melee expert, and fleet of foot. Um, so uh, that provides the, the bulk of the Tudor army. Along with that, I gave it one unit of um, cavalry, knights. So they are just average, um, fully armoured, but on unprotected horses, charging lancer, melee expert. 
and a unit of dismounted men-at-arms, uh, just fully armoured with two-handed cut and crush. Um, the bit that makes the um, Tudor army in Bosworth a bit different is the use of the French-supplied mercenaries and the Scottish. So I also gave Henry Tudor a, a unit of Scots who are a close average protected long spear, again formed, and then uh, three units of drill mercenaries, two drill close average pole arm representing halberdiers, and a unit of crossbowmen, uh, drill loose average protected experienced crossbow. Um, Richard, can I inter interrupt for two seconds? Please. I'm being totally thick. We're looking at the early Tudor English, bringing this back to Meg, yeah? Yep, this is the early Tudor English army. I can't see any mention of French. Uh, the French are uh, provided as an option in the list. You're now getting me worried. Because... <laughs> they're, 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 um, the list has got a line for French pikemen with halberdiers only in 1485. Um, the okay. line below that allows you to replace the French pikemen with halberds only. Yeah. If I remember rightly, Richard, is um, an, a, a change to the list you made following an article in Slingshot by Duncan Head um, analysing the French mercenaries who have traditionally been seen as pikemen, but the evidence is for that is rather weak. I, yeah, I, I think I, I would leave it as an open question as to whether the French were pike or um, halberd arm. Um, I chose halberd for the reconstruction because uh, I felt it gave a better battle, more balance than introducing pikemen. So that's the logic. Um, I, I, I think the honest answer is we, we really don't know whether they were um, pike or halberds or indeed a mixture, somewhat a mixture of the two. Um, the fact is that it appears that the French attack uh, on the uh, Tudor left, uh, um, Richard's right, was the factor that swung the battle uh, Henry's way. Um, the, the Scots definitely uh, were present, and they are described as having uh, mare spikes, which I think are, are typically regarded as being sort of 12 to 14 foot long. Um, they're classified as long spear in the list. They don't currently actually appear in the uh, early Tudor list, and that's clearly an omission, so don't be too surprised if the 2022 version of the army lists includes an option for a unit of Scots. Um, okay. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to make sure we were just bringing it back no. to what someone can put on the table. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Um, so uh, Richard's army corresponds to the Wars of the Roses. Um, York, is it called Yorkist English? No, there is a Richard III oh, English. Richard III list, isn't it? Richard III, yeah. Um, so this is more a uh, sort of a standard, I suppose, Wars of the Roses uh, list. Um, Richard uh, gets a royal house, household, which is just a unit, a tug of two, superior armoured horse, fully armoured, charging lance and melee expert cavalry. Um, and I added a special rule for the battle, which was that Richard had to remain with his household knights. Um, unless the knights became broke. Um, we know that Richard actually had more uh, cavalry than Henry, so I gave Richard also a unit of curras, 
uh, scurriers they're described as in um, medieval chronicles and they were formed loose average protected charging lance and melee expert. Um, the rest of uh, Henry's army consists of uh, retinue longbowmen and he has more of those than Henry, retinue billmen, uh, men-at-arms, uh, militia longbowmen and militia billmen. They're equivalent to the retinue except they are tribal and they are poor. Uh, but they are protected. Um, and I gave also a Richard a unit of mercenary handgunners who are just average protected experienced firearm. Uh, we do know that handguns were present on the battlefield um, because some shot has been recovered. In fact, more shot than has been recovered on any other medieval battlefield in Europe, I believe. Um, but that's not saying a great deal because most medieval battlefields have not um, uh, had too much archaeology um, done on them. So it, it's, it's impossible to say whether um, handgunners were a large feature of the battles of this period or not. Um, along with that, um, the, 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 I made special provision for the Earl of Northumberland's command. Uh, the Earl of Northumberland brought up the rear guard at Bosworth and um, basically failed to commit to the battle and countering the flank attack of the French. Um, so um, I basically made Northumberland's command a hesitant command um, and he had a unit of retinue, a unit of northern spearmen who had just formed those average short shield wall, a unit of uh, billmen, and a unit of northern longbowmen who are, like the Welsh, average unprotected power. Um, Richard has better artillery than Henry. I gave Richard four cannon to Henry's two. Um, the being king, one of the important things of being king was that you had a large artillery. It sort of pronounced um, how the fact that um, you had that right to rule the kingdom sort of having the latest sort of tiger tanks if you were German or whatever. Um, however, they probably were, um, they, they undoubtedly made a lot of noise and smoke. How actually dangerous artillery were in the actual battle is um, probably a point to debate. I think it's fair to say that a cannonball coming out of uh, cannon uh, probably could head in a pretty random direction uh, and even hitting an army was probably a matter of luck rather than judgment, let alone trying to aim the damn thing at a particular target. <laughs> um, what is undoubtedly true was that if a cannonball did uh, actually find its way to plowing through a unit, um, the effect would be really shocking. Um, in, in tests, they have um, reconstructed a, um, a, an artillery piece of this period and fired it as a pig carcass. Um, the result is that you get splinters of bone and flesh um, going all over the place, and it would have undoubtedly may been an absolutely horrific um, sight and uh, would have put a, um, the scare... Uh, would have scared even the most experienced troops. And this may well be why the French wanted to be as far away from the artillery as possible. In the reconstruction, we actually had the French as a flank attack, um, 
uh, coming in on the left flank, Henry's left flank, um, but they only needed a single red card to arrive. So we had a bit of randomness as to whether the um, Northumberland would turn reliable and support um, Richard or whether the flank attack would arrive first and threaten Richard's flank. In the actual reconstruction on Sunday, um, in fact, both sides became uh, sort of arrived and became reliable at the same point in time. Um, however, I was commanding the Earl of Surrey on the uh, right flank of uh, Richard's main line. And in the crucial ter uh, turns, I drew a series of black and white cards, which meant I was unable to turn to face the French flank. Um, and the net effect combined with Simon's skillful deployment of the Billman men at arms to attack on that flank as well um, led to the collapse of Richard's army. Um, so suddenly, actually, that Richard never got a chance to. I had a special rule like, to, um, uh, to play what I called it my kingdom for a horse card to actually try and charge at uh, Henry Tudor to kill Henry in the battle. Um, but the the, the um, uh, Yorkist collapse was so quick that he never got the order. So those are the two armies. The Henry's was just just under 13,000 points. Richard's army was actually a bit more, uh, 13,500 plus points. Um, but um, in the end, it, it turned out that it was a comfortable um, victory for Henry. In the real battle, of course, um, Northumberland never sort of commits. The French attack on the left flank seems to have been successful. Richard starts to realise he's losing the battle, gets desperate, um, spots that Henry is by himself with just his personal retinue um, near the marsh, we believe, um, charges with the aim of um, killing Henry Tudor, which would have killed off the, uh, the Lancastrian cause there and then. Um, kills, uh, or uh, maims at least, uh, Richard's um, standard bearer, um, at, sorry, Henry's standard bearer, and Richard gets within a few yards of Henry uh, before it's believed that Sir William Stanley's, Stanley's troops charge down, rescue Henry, and Richard meets a very painful end, um, as evidenced by his corpse, which, of course, the skeleton of was recovered from a car park in Leicester. Um, as, as somebody had to explain at the um, uh, battle day experience, battlefield experience, which has been held in Leicestershire, uh, it wasn't a car park when they buried Henry. <laughs> um, but um, yes, yeah, so um, an analysis of the skeleton showed the various wounds that um, killed Henry uh, and um, treatment of his body off battle itself, which uh, I don't think to, but there are plenty of details. Bits of his body were cut off, I think. <clears throat> um, and, and various other... Um, Richard, could, could I just ask that you, you just mention to the, to the, to the listener the, um, the, the special rule I know you had in place for the artillery, uh, just because I think it might be interesting for... Um, anybody else wanting to reconstruct a later medieval battle? I thought it was a, a good idea. Yeah, so um, one of the things that the um, location of the cannonballs on the battlefield actually shows is how far those 
cannonballs actually went and travelled. Um, some of the cannonballs are nearly a mile away from where they were probably fired. Um, so for the battle, I introduced a rule that cannon would actually shoot at uh, 24 base widths range, um, but I also um, downgraded a colour if they were shooting over eight base. Um, so this was obviously to avoid them to effect. Um, we're not looking at a Napoleonic, so no. I, I, it's getting blown away. My understanding of the artillery at that time and the fact that the king had the biggest artillery train was more for uh, if his pesky barons were in their castle, he could, uh, he could um, storm the castle. That was my understanding. So artillery was much more effective at actually just knocking lumps off quite a big target. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I mean, the, the field artillery are actually much lighter than the, um, the, the large siege cannons, uh, which a king would also hold. Um, but I, I think uh, Richard actually had over 70. I think they're described as serpentines. Um, so these would have been... Uh, smaller barrels uh, mounted on sort of wagon wheels um, rather than the sort of big uh, mortars and artillery that were used in sieges. Um, but they would still be capable of taking dents out of walls and um, certainly would have no problem going through um, a, a whole file of bodies. Um, in, and the cannibals probably um, bounced. And um, in fact, uh, at uh, Bosworth, the ground was actually quite soft. There'd been quite a lot of rain in that August. Um, that never happens these days, of course. Um, <laughs> and so this is actually probably why so many of the cannonballs actually were recovered by the archaeology, um, because they actually probably embedded themselves in the soil to a depth where they wouldn't be capable of being recovered. Um, but in, in probably in most battlefields, cannonballs were actually quite valuable um, and you wouldn't just leave them lying around uh, in the same way as you don't recover arrows, arrowheads, largely battlefields, because the arrows would have, um, the head would bury itself into the ground, but the fletching would stack above the ground. So after the battlefield, they'd go around recovering literally tens of thousands of arrows in, in a battle like Bosworth. Okay, that, that was great, Richard. Thank you very much for that. And now we're just going to broaden our scope a little bit about look at, look at some of the other armies in the period and fo focus more into actual meg lists you might take to a competition. So, Nick, over to you, sir. Okay, I just thought I'd do a, a little bit, just following on from Richard's historical bit on Bosworth. And just is some um, before we move on to specific meg lists, there's some, some sort of points on armies of the Wars of the Roses period and a little bit about tactics and weaponry. Um, just to point out the um, armies, most of the armies of the period, English armies of the period um, for the Wars of the Roses um, differed from the armies that I think a lot of people relate them to, the armies of the Hundred Years' War, which obviously finished just before the Wars of the Rose period. Um, the method of recruitment that was different, therefore the compositions of the armies differed somewhat from the Hundred Years' War army, um, which you obviously see in the list. In the actual Hundred Years' War, armies were raised by indenture, which is a contract, um, and were paid for, uh, at least in part, by tax grants from Parliament. So these were planned well in advance, um, 
often a couple of years before the actual campaign started and troops to be recruited were specified in the indentures um, in terms of number of men at arms and number of archers so you know a, a contract would be drawn up and somebody might be contract to provide say 10 men at arms and 30 archers um, for the Agincourt campaign um, and the pay rates for those troops would be set down um, and the troops were paid on a quarterly basis in advance. In the Wars of the Roses, this is a bit different. We're into a time of civil war. Um, an army is often needed really quite quickly for, and often for a short-term purpose. Um, you can remember the Wars of the Roses. We think of it this period, you know, Richard mentioned 1455 to into the 1490s, depending how you're going to measure it. But it wasn't a continuous war. It was a, a series of short, relatively short, sharp often just leading up to a single big battle, like Bosworth, um, and then that's it. Uh, you don't need the army anymore. And in fact, people wanted, wanted to get rid of the troops. You know, you don't want large amounts of armed men wandering. So these armies are raised in a more traditional way by, by the great men, the nobles, um, effectively rounding up as many men as they could call on in short notice from the, their land holdings and their contacts and, and you know, the other and the men in their service. So, you know, so you've got a lot less control over what turns up you know you, you just go and say i need men give me men um obviously in england a lot of them are going to be archers we've still got laws about archery being practiced and they were tried to enforce them um but essentially they they the the form of those armies is quite different uh, there, were, there were two noted exceptions in the period we we're looking at um where armies were raised by indenture and this was for edward the fourth 1475 invasion of france and his 1482 expedition against Scotland, which was actually led by Richard, Duke of Gloucester. Um, so you can remember England doesn't have a standing army, unlike nations like France and Burgundy, which are moving to with their ordinances to more um, uh, professional armies, more standing armies. Um, England basically had a garrison in Calais, and after 1482, another garrison in Berwick, when Richard took Berwick from the Scots for the final. So I think the main upshot of this is that Compared to an army of the Hundred Years' War or Edward's army for the French campaign, you'd have a lower proportion of archers in the army and a higher proportion of troops that uh, we classify as billmen. Although the, when we say billmen, it's actually a mixed collection of stave, bills, spears, poleaxe. Um, you know, by comparison, the army of Edward IV had a proportion of one man-at-arms to eight archers in the in the in the recruitment, um, but you wouldn't get, you'd have a lot more other troops in the Roses army who would just be billmen. Um, just worth noting as well, again, as Richard mentioned, you know, the sizes of the armies are really uncertain. The historical record is really patchy, and we don't really know how big the armies were. In fact, I think modern thinking is moving towards the idea that a lot of these battles were somewhat smaller than traditionally thought. You know, the uh, a good example is probably Towton, which is often said to be the largest battle on English soil. Um, but some estimates of numbers are, are really coming down quite substantially, um, sort of single-figure thousands instead of the 40-odd thousand. So, you know, that's a bit of background on that. So think about the tactics these armies used in the Wars of the Roses. Um, basically, we know very, very little. The battle descriptions that come down to us don't really tell us. Very, um, and it's really not clear what the tactics were. Um, we don't know how the archers and the other troops were arrayed together on the battlefield. Um, some battles, and Towton's an example, we have descriptions where the archers apparently being deployed um, in mass bodies to shoot at the enemy for at least part of the battle. Um, but even then, what they did after that 
when the when the two sides came to hand-to-hand combat, it's not mentioned. And you know, these these battles were decided by hand-to-hand combat, and the implication is some of them it's quite prolonged hand-to-hand combat as well. So you know, was Towton the bloodiest battle on Um Yes, as well. You know, the the there's mass graves being found of it with um, and, and faces reconstructed of the people who who were killed with some quite quite extensive and nasty wounds. Um, in the same way that Richard the Third's body has been excavated. Um, but but it's it's definitely the, the size of the battle is very much up for question. I think and the I, the, fam- the famous grave pits they have excavated. Don't actually have that many men in them. Is this, you know, but you know, archaeology can be a bit hit and miss. So I'd I'd be very cautious, and this applies to Bosworth as well, on anything you read on the internet. Um, The Wikipedia entry for Bosworth is unfortunately still largely referring to the um, pre-archaeology views of the battle. Um, this is because Wikipedia only works on secondary sources and the editors of Wikipedia are still hung up with the sources that actually don't bear any resemblance to the archaeology. Uh, and that's true of Towton as well. If you look actually at the size of the field on which the Battle of Towton took place, uh, it's just not big enough for, for most of the numbers that are quoted. Um, and just to give an indication of Bosworth, I mean, the, the actual sources, mostly written uh, between a year and 80 years after when the battle actually took place, uh, they vary in quoting the numbers from about 10,000 uh, up to 60,000. Um, that's the range of numbers that, that actually appear in the sources. And uh, it, it is likely that the, the larger numbers are just fabrication um, and it's the numbers at the lower end of the range that are actually likely to be the most accurate. But like a lot of these things, we don't really know. Yeah. I mean, there is some skeletal um, uh, evidence where you know someone's an archer, the way the muscles attach to the skeleton, you can see how the skeleton's developed, Yeah. So you can say that person's an archer who's been trained. And they at Towton, I believe, there were graves where people had been dispatched in a very uniform way, which looks like at the end of the battle, the opposing archers were, were killed. The cap- yeah, at the, 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 the end of Towton, there was, a, there was a, a route and people were hacked down. Um, yeah, I, OK. Um, I, the stuff I've read, it was, the, the, the wounds were very uniform. You know, look, like... A bit like the pistol to the back of the neck, you know. There, there are at least some skeletons which show evidence that the uh, victim was was killed after the battlefield, yeah, yeah. Um, either because they were already so badly wounded that it was actually... Um, yeah, that there is... Yeah, ...as well, but I think there's some evidence that some were actually um, executed, yes. Um, that is true, but that that's the problem is that those were bodies in a grave... So they were actually placed there. They weren't bodies necessarily um, that died actually on the battlefield itself. And I mean, there's also skeletal evidence that people suffered bad wounds and yet um, survived uh, as well. Well, Famously, one of the Towton bodies is exactly that, had had a vicious cut to the side of his head, um, partly mangling his jaw, but he'd survived that. Um, It had healed up only for him to be then killed at Towton. Or after town. So yeah, the fascinating stuff. A bit grim. This has an effect on the 
um, classification of the armies as well. Um, I'll mention that with the army lists, for example, I could have reconstructed Bosworth to give um, the archer units, I could have made sixes and made them combat shy um, and had units of eight um, for the billmen with polearm. I actually went the other way around. So I had archers in units of eight and they weren't combat shy and the billmen in sixes just to make the battle more a contest of archery fire than a contest of um, billmen. Now that either interpretation I think is equally valid. Um, you could reconstruct the Bosworth armies and actually made them a larger proportion of billmen uh, and made the billmen relatively more effective to the archers. Um, and I think this just reflects that we don't really know too much about the actual tactics used on the battlefield. We don't really know how the units were organised um, in a great deal, do we, Nick? No, no. I mean, it's, um, again, compared to the Hundred Years' War, where it does seem that, in general, the, the archers were separated out into large bodies. We don't have that evidence for this period, the War of the Roses period. Um, and given it's a civil war, there is probably some incentive for a lord to keep as many of his own troops around him as possible uh, one to keep him alive obviously but you know in political and politically uncertain times on the danger of a battlefield uh, having as many of your troops around you rather than being separated away from is, is, is probably a good thing so we could have essentially mixed bodies of archers and hand-to-hand -hand troops um you know as, as as you say, you know, Richard's saying, you know, it does make army compositions, army lists rather speculative. Um, and certainly the you could you could say you know, the the lists we have which allow the archers and billmen and men at arms to pass through each other is is almost sort of a covering but the bases both ways. <laughs> so you've got <laughs> but, but but I would say say a perfectly viable cop, a reasonable cop out, if you know to call it a cop. Um because you it could be modeling troops who are um in separate bodies or the situation like you have at Towton where you know the Yorkists appear to have sent their archers forward to shoot and then later on in the battle you get to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat so the the guys with the pole weapons the pole the bills and pole axes would have been at the front so you know it's but it is I, mean, I think I'd definitely say one thing that I'd be very wary of any anybody or any publication that you know be it a book or as Richard quite brightly points out something something like Wikipedia online that says they have the definitive answer to the tactics of, <laughs> that were used during the wars of the roses because um, I just don't think the evidence in there in fact I think earlier this year a book was published which did do just that and um, I've not seen a good review of it yet basically <laughs> and one of the fundamental points is how do you know how do you know that just while we're on that, I'd just like to, to just have a, a little diversion into a weapon, the longbow, just because <laughs> it does feature so much. Um, just a, a bugbear of mine, I'd, I'd just like to point out that longbow itself is a bit of an anachronistic term. In Imperial, they'd just be called bows. Maybe, maybe they'd be called a war bow for one that was heavy enough. I think there's a, I'm only aware of one case where longbows are referred to um, in one of the Paston letters where Marjorie Paston does refer to longbows but it appears to be only to differentiate them from crossbows and it's maybe I think it may be a unique thing I think that it, and what whilst I think 
our view of the longbow has changed for the better over the past couple of decades. It's like to bang on, to stamp on the, the, the sort of myth that they were some sort of super weapon and, and gun down the opposition in droves that, that still still crops up from time to time. It's, it's very much worth noting that um, even when fighting the Scots, whose defensive equipment wasn't noted for being top-notch, it was fairly basic, um, the Scots usually got to the English line, despite the number of longbowmen that were obviously peppering. So, you know, have to bear in mind, it ain't a super weapon. Um, but the one area where it does seem to be reasonably effective and, and sort of living up to the myth is um, when shooting at cavalry. Um, at least archers in a, in a reasonable position, a good, a good position, in mass numbers, reasonably competent. The longbow does appear to have been quite effective. I mean, Cressy is a great example of that. And following Cressy, the French mainly mainly dismounted their cavalry to take on the English. So it does point out that something there's something there. But you know, you have to bear in mind the English were pretty good at picking their positions at the time. Uh, so you know, it's it's not just the weapon. Um, the, the the other point I would make is that the French still, however, continue to send cavalry to try and charge the flanks of Russia's. Um, right throughout the Hundred Years' War. In, indeed, and the, the, the battle plan that was drawn up for the Agincourt campaign they have, um, is either called the Somme plan or the British Library plan, depending which book you read, um, specifically caters for that. The, the cavalry charges at Agincourt appear to be a not very well executed version of that. Um, so, you know, despite that, the French still saw a role uh, their cavalry in being able to ride down archers. Um, and of course, this did happen at the Battle of Vernoy, where mercenary Italian cavalry did ride literally through the English archer line, um, but that does appear to be because they are all on armoured horses. The Italians had, by that stage, been able to mass-produce quality horse up, and pretty much after that, you know, that's the sort of start of the, mm, it's not going to end well for the longbowmen in the long run on the armour technology carries. Um, in the interest of not rabbiting on and, and boring everybody too much about that, I'll leave them that. But just, you know, just, I'd just like to reiterate the there's an awful lot we don't know about the Wars of the Roses, um, which is leaves a lot open to speculate. And perhaps now we shall move on to Meg Armies. Ray? Yes, let's do it. What are you bringing to the table tonight? Um, or do you well, want me to go first to give you a break? If, if you want, yes, let's do that. All right. So we rolled dice and I lost. So I'm doing the Lancastrian English um, from the Medieval Kings in the North PDF. And um, I thought there was two ways to make this viable for, I, I don't know, viable for matched play. Let's put it that way. Uh, and I went for the let's make it as big as possible. Um, and uh, so my command and control is uh, a competent, two competent professional uh, uh, generals and a mediocre professional. And then a competent professional internal ally, which I believe you have, because you can only have two sub-generals. So the Army CNC is a professional. Um, and I end up with seven PBS and two scouting, which in period is, you know, it's okay. Um, but um, I've built the army to, you have to kill eight tugs to break it. thought that would make Richard happy. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm absolutely shocked that you've gone for a competent ally. You never do that. Well, uh, okay. So um, I have to admit that when you rejected my list for the third time when checking, <laughs> I thought I just need to find some points somewhere. And Richard has always maintained that a competent ally is is the statistically 
Richard explain, it's statistically not that different to having a talented ally. It is different to having a talented ally, but it still is going to be reliable more often than most people imagine, I think. There you go. There you go. So I've, I've yeah, so I went for it. So my army is uh, four tugs of uh, retinue longbow, and they're, eight, they're tugs of eight. Uh, and so that's infantry formed loose, average protected, experienced power bow. Uh, and uh, I, there are no stakes in the army, because if you, if you take any stakes, um, you have to all, all have to have stakes. And I, I think we all, I think on this podcast, we all agree that if you take stakes, it changes the game so much that I think you end up with a non-game, to be honest. That's my opinion. So uh, no stakes. Uh, two uh, two um, uh, tugs of retinue billmen who are infantry form close average protected polearm, uh, an eight and a six, and they can interpenetrate um, with the longbow and vice versa. Uh, then two tugs of men at arms. A bit disappointed with the men at arms, but now having heard uh, the, all the history, maybe uh, there is a, a valid explanation. So these are infantry drilled close, average, fully armoured, two hand cut and crush, and I gave them melee expert. But they're only tugs of four, um, so a bit disappointed with them. They as well can interpenetrate with the longbow, but not the billman. I think. Either the billman or the men-at-arms can go through the retinue longbow, and the retinue longbow can go through either of them, but the men-at-arms can't go through the billman. Is that right? Um, and then um, I then put in a, a unit of mercenary crossbow, infantry drilled loose, average protected experience crossbow, eight of those. Um, and then what I had to get into the army, absolutely had to get in the army, I've gone for the Northern Border Staves, I think they're called. And that's cavalry formed, flexible, average protected charging lance. Because I've played these, these games in period. I've played them with Ian and I've played them at our little tournaments. And if you get something around the flank and you hit this long, with these beautifully lined up arbies, you can do some serious damage. So uh, I had to have them. I've never, I've never seen that troop type before. Absolutely love them. Cavalry, form, flexible, average protected, charging lancers, six of those, I'm having them. They, they, I had to have them. And then some northern border spearmen, infantry, formed because you have to have them to get the charging lancers, I believe. Infantry, form, loose, average protected, short spear, shield wall in a six. Um, and then uh, four units complete dross to get me up to the eight break, and I'll just hide these. Uh, and there's some Irish kerns, I believe. Are they Irish? Infantry, tribal loose, poor, unprotected, unskilled javelin, short spear, combat shy, 17 points. Get in, six of those. Three, six in a tug and three of those. Uh, doing a race special. And then militia billmen, infantry, tribal close, poor, protected, pole arm, combat shy, uh, six of those. Um, and then I have attacks. So I have to, if I want the kerns, I have to get the skirmishing kerns. So there's a six of skirmisher average unprotected unskilled javelin combat shy 22.6 of those brings the army up to 9072 uh the camp is poor unprotected um yeah so as i said pbs of seven scouting two tugs to break eight i think i've got i i, I don't know i mean I, I wasn't really thinking that much i think that the stuff that fights is pretty damn good uh in period and i think those northern border staves can win the game for you. There you go. I agree. Those northern border staves are nice. Form flexible, 
Average protected charging Lancer looked good to me. But whether they're going to win the game for <laughs> might be, be over-egging. might be a bit optimistic. <laughs> depends depends with what your opponent does, I think. But if they're, they're there for if an opportunity presents itself, which is probably how they were largely used historically. Yeah, if an opportunity presents itself, they'll take advantage of it, I guess. Go for the baggage. Yeah, exactly. Opportunistic. Go yeah. for the bag, go for the baggage. You know, surprise someone with the move, you know, one move and convert from a, a soak to a tug. I'm liking it. I'm liking it. Oh, nothing wrong with them as troops. Um, I have a personal dislike of men at arms in fours. Uh, there's no option. Oh, is it really? Yeah. No. Oh, blimey. me. But it, and, it, and it, I know it's really harsh and it kind of fits in with the history, though. That's why I'm saying I was really peeved when I was building the list, but it fits in with the history. Yes. No, I, 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 in terms of the, yeah. you know, the one to eight and then one to many. It, yeah, I, I mean, sorry for that, but uh, I, it's, it's to avoid the armies having a massive um, block of um, night, dismounted knights in effect, because there's not really any evidence for that in any of the Wars of the Roses battles, was the, was the view I took. Um, no, no, I, I, I'm not going to disagree with that. I just, I'm just not keen on them. I must admit, I would personally be tempted not to take them, but to take Billman instead in bigger units. Uh, yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. Um, the, the problem, of course, is that the list has a limit to the number of Billman you can take before you have to take the militia Billman. So uh, yeah, actually, no, it probably runs out, doesn't it? Probably, yeah, because you run out. Of, I think the limit's 16 for the uh, yes, no, I think better billman. You're, you're um, just checking the list, you are correct. So, you, yeah, I mean, this is unless this you is, have a northern contingent. So, I think it's yeah. the thing with Wars of the Roses, the Wars of the Roses lists, and, and not unreasonable from a historical point of view, is that you don't actually have that much choice for the, for the decent stuff. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you get plenty of choice for the dross, but uh. Um, not so much choice for the good stuff. I, th I think these are armies that largely, if, if you're going to go into competition, I think they largely pick themselves. Yeah. The, the homegrown um, Wars of the Roses armies. I think uh, when we come onto your army, Nick, I think that that is a slightly different beast. So it's perhaps worth covering covering your army and the differences yeah, sure. in it. Sure. Yeah. No. I'll. I'll... My army, the one, the one I chose from the, for this period, um, deliberate is a contrast. Um, we've got the, you know, the Lancastrian from Ray there, and the the two armies that Richard designed for the Bosworth scenario. Um, I've gone for the Edward the Fourth English um, army, which is actually in the House of Valois book set because this um, represents the army that Edward the Fourth took to. Um, France in 1475, as I mentioned earlier, and it also covers the 1482 expedition to Scotland. Oh, yes, obviously, that wasn't to France, but it's these. This is a an army raised like the ones in the Hundred Years' War by indenture, so the army looks rather different from the Rose. Um, the list I've chosen um, and and have used previously a couple of years ago. Um, commanding, I've always had trouble getting a lot of command and control into this army list because of what I wanted to take elsewhere so you know compromises and all that I've got a competent professional army commander 
a competent professional sub-general and two mediocre professional sub-generals. So there's only 10 cards there, um, but I found the army can get away with that um, because it's quite compact, it's quite tough, and it's going to rely quite a bit on shooting. So you don't need to run around and do clever manoeuvres. Um, this gives a PBS of seven light rays, but a scouting of only one. Um, again, I didn't really, you know, could often be outscouted, but didn't really find it to be that much of an issue. Okay, I've gone for a unit of household knights, six bases of formed loose, average, fully armoured men on unarmoured horses, charging lancer, melee expert, dismountable. Um, they, they dismount as um, formed, close, fully armoured, average, two-handed cut and Alas, they don't get the melee expert on, so you can't have everything. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, they're a unit that can, can effect, fight effectively enough mounted and gives you something to run around. It's a bit mobile and obviously can dismount as reason as pretty tough. Did you say unit of six? Yes. Uh, I hate to burst your bubble, but they can only be in fours. Oh, hang on. Maybe not. No, hang on. I'm the, looking at the wrong Edward the Fourth English can have... Four. Oh, sorry. Apologies. That's... <laughs> House of Valois. In the House of Valois, PDF. Yeah, and guess what? I was looking at the Magna list. I ought to know. <laughs> didn't I? Apologies for that. Common error. Don't look at the Magna list. Yes. <laughs> That'll be the Pike in six. That'll be the Pike in units of six. Yeah, <laughs> well, indeed, yeah. I've gone for a unit of uh, the men-at-arms on foot. Six bases, infantry, drill close, average, fully armoured, two-handed cut and crush, melee expert. Really quite tough. They're really not. Um, got two units of retinue longbowmen, uh, the retinue longbowmen and men-at-arms for half of the bases. Um, so this is two units, each of six bases. Half of the bases are drilled loose, average protected, skilled power bow, melee expert. And half the bases are the same, but don't have the melee expert. The melee expert is there to represent a few men-at-arms scattered around the unit um, and also the general fighty nature of English archers. But obviously, one of the big key things there, you're drilled and you've got skilled power. They're quite expensive, but they're pretty good. Two units of those. Three units of just ordinary longbowmen with men-at-arms as well. So these are the same as the retinue ones, but they're formed loose instead of drilled. But again, half of the bases have melee expert, half don't. They're all in sixes, not, not eights like Ray had in his list. Um, you know, Again, points, costs, whatever. And I, I've generally found sixes work quite well. The melee expert really makes it stand up. Um, like Ray, I've not bothered with stakes for any of these um, for the same reasons. I think you, you end up with a bit of a non-game if you take them and a lot less fun. Um, got two units of billmen, formed close, average protected, pole arm, eight bases in each. Um, now, I've gone for the 1482 version of the army, which is the invasion of Scotland, led by Richard, Duke of Gloucester. And this army, um, the Edward, or perhaps Richard, I don't, debatable who was really the moving force behind it, um, had recruited some mercenaries from the continent and included recruited pikemen and handgunners. Um, so to reflect this, I've included a base, um, a base, a unit of each. So I've got a unit of the mercenary pikemen, infantry drilled close, average protected pike with shove and orb, and mercenary handgunners, infantry drilled loose, poor protected, experienced firearm, combat shy. Um, that to downgrade them to poor to fit in. Um, I will confess that the mercenary handgunners are, they're not that good, they're not that useful, but I did want to reflect the army for 42. Uh, poor and fortified camp just to round it out. 
Um, so that's it. You know, it's an army that's going to rely on its shooting, but the shooters have got some combat capability. The melee expert, um, the men at arms are a pretty good melee unit. The billmen are reasonably tough, and the pole arm means they can be used to blunt um, enemy knights charging lancers. So the pole arm negates the charging lancer claim, um, and pole arm is quite handy against mounted. Um, and the household knights, the mounted knights, the cavalry. Um, do give you, as I said earlier, that, that one unit that can, is mobile and can be used as a bit as a, a fire brigade if necessary, or you could you could start them or dismount them partway through the game to give you another unit of fully armoured infantry to go and chop people up with a two-handed cut. And, um, in general, I've quite enjoyed using it. As I said, the, the command and control is tight on 10 cards, but you've got power bows doing a lot of shooting at quite a long range, so i found it generally works. But with that scouting of one, you're likely to be out scouted. So when the terrain's gone down, you need to come up with a good plan of how you can deploy them so they can meet threats for if you're out scouted. So that's my offering. I want you to rack your brains, Nick, for the first time we played when you used this. I can't remember what I was using, but you left your one of your end of your line hanging and I got some cavalry round and it uh, yes, yeah, so that, that was an early time use. I think you, you were using something Spanish, weren't you? you know, yeah, and I think it was your first use of the army. So I'm not, I'm just saying that that's, you know, if you time that attack by your foot to the front and something hitting you in the flank, it's just. Yes, yes, it, it can be undone. You, you, it does take, it, it's a definitely an army you need to get a couple of practice games. You, you'll almost certainly lose a couple straight off. But you've used this in a competition, haven't you? I used it at BrickCon in 2019. Yeah. Uh, I think I achieved a mid-table mediocrity, <laughs> but um, had, had it's nice games. To take an army that other people, no one else. I can't remember seeing anybody else using it, but I, I think it's quite a, a competitive army. I think it's got things going for it. It's funny. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm just freewheeling now. Uh, I'm so tired. I'm probably hallucinating. But it's, it seems to be more like a hundred years' war English. Um, it is, and that comes down to. Um, the same because of the way it was raised. It was raised by indenture, and then right. it, it ended up with a ratio of one man at arms to eight bowmen, according right. to the indentures we have, uh, the numbers we have. The English had generally had declining numbers of men at arms from from the start of the Hundred Years' War through. So, but but yes, it, it, it is very much a Hundred Years' War style army, but with you know it's got billmen to bulk up the number of fighting infantry, and it's got the the pikemen are really useful. <coughs> army they really add a, a little bit of an edge to it yeah agreed you know if you've got if you got the if you have the especially the, the pikemen and the the men at arms together you've got two units that are drilled good fighting foot um and along with the two units of drilled longbowmen you've, you've got something that can shift around a reasonable amount for infantry yep so, so so they would lead your attack you know, if, the, if the longbowmen can prepare the way and then the, the pikemen and the men-at-arms go in and kill things, that's sort of the ideal scenario. T getting the timing right a bit, especially with 10 cards. Did, and you said you did have some skirmishers. No, no, it, it, it's got the unit of handgunners, which I say it's, it's to some degree is, a well, the Gloucester's army had them, so I'm putting them in. Uh, so they're not skirmishers by then, are they? No, no, they're, 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 they're drilled loose. Um, I've never really got much use out of them other than as a filling unit. There's probably an argument you could drop that unit, just go down to 10 units and improve, improve your generals. Because one of the things um, with the army that I put together, uh, I was thinking you could use the Irish uh, skirmishers uh, in front of your men-at-arms to take the ablative wounds as they, as they go in. 
So I know the other men at arms, because I'm thinking, like you said, all men at arms in four. So you start thinking about how you're going to protect them, because if they get in, they they munch anything. As long as, yeah, the, yes, I mean, using in yours, the skirmishers in front of the men at arms, if you're facing it, it's going to shoot you. Um, I mean, I, I was I, genuinely, when you said do the Lancastrians, and by the way, they lost, because, um, you know, you, you couldn't rely on me to know that. <laughs> Um, I was thinking that someone was going to do a Yorkist list. So we were actually going to have some kind of historical... Um, so I was only thinking of the army in terms of very narrow history. There you go. Well, in a way, so was I. <laughs> yeah, because you wouldn't take... I mean, you wouldn't take that Lancastrian... Well, here's a challenge, listeners. <laughs> take the Lancastrian list to a competition. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Stephen, Stephen Stead's going to take it to a competition and win now. Win the competition with it. I, I, I think that would be well worth boasting about if you did. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't take that bet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I think we've done it, haven't we? We've done we've done a very popular uh, period. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that it's a hugely popular historical period that everyone has a fascination with in this country. Um, and uh, Richard's been able to go to a Society of Ancients with Meg. And, and how did you feel, Meg? Uh, fared, uh, you know, because you, you said there were 10 different rules. Uh, ten, yeah, 10 different rule sets from uh, Hordes of the Things, believe it or not, to DBA, to DBMM, to um, Bloody Barons. Uh, uh, I know. Art de la Guerre, AD, 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 or whatever. If there was Art de la Guerre, I didn't see <coughs> it. Was it um, a skirmish game represented? So, um, I don't think there was anything, because it was Bosworth, I don't think there was anything that I would say was a true skirmish game. Um, I know, uh, anyway, so I mean, one of the things is there are so many games going on, it's quite hard to, uh, once you're organising your own game, to follow what everybody else has been doing. But everybody seemed to have a good time. Um, I mean, I thought the Meg result was plausible, from a historical point of view, um, probably, I mean, the devastation of the uh, flank attack was uh, quite probable from the accounts of the battle and the fact that uh, Richard ended up losing quickly. Um, I was a bit disappointed I didn't get the chance to play the My Kingdom for a Horse card and try and um, kill Henry Tudor, but that, that was part of the scenario rules. Um, and uh, yeah, everybody enjoyed themselves, which ultimately is the main aim. Brilliant. And um, just to just to mention, next year we hope to, the Society of Ancients Battle Day will be Adrianople, uh, the battle where the Goths um, destroyed an Eastern Roman Empire army. So uh, uh, another opportunity for a for a podcast. <laughs> We're gonna to have to wait a year before we do. We do. Well, we we may oh, hold it in March, April time, so not quite a year. Can I go to say you know, I I I did a a play test of Richard's scenario, uh, and it was great fun. Um, we did get to use the My Kingdom for a horse. I mean, I I, I was playing Richard the uh, Third. Richard was <laughs> Richard was playing Henry, and and was was beating me. The, the French flank march arrived um, early bef- before Northampton committed and basically it wasn't going well. So, so I played the, the My Kingdom for a horse and um, Richard brained Henry on the first roll of the dice, if I remember rightly. Yay. Yeah, I sort of remember that as well, yes. 
So much, it was much maligned. Much maligned. In fact, I've, I've done that twice once as Henry and once as Richard. And in, on both occasions, I got brained. <laughs> <laughs> So it's just tells you something about my dice rolling, I think. <laughs> well, it, 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 it was because I mean it was a because I, I won't go to how, how, how it worked. Basically, it was a straight green dice versus green dice, and I rolled a skull and you rolled a blank. So, <laughs> or, or you so might have can our green. listeners can our listeners find the uh, scenario rules and everything somewhere? Can we put that on the blog, Richard? The, the, yeah, the, the the scenario details are in the lists provided so um so any uh, any any one of our two listeners can play this game um at home good i'm yes. going to call a stop to this section chaps just 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 before oh, we no, go no, no, no i'm not we're not going anywhere i want to talk about other stuff i was just going to say along with the stuff that the, the list up on the blog there'll be some some uh tips for uh uh figure suppliers and books as usual so people Excellent. can look into the history Excellent. Um, so don't forget to look at that as well. And if anyone uses flexible charging lancers, please write in. You can win a prize if you tell me how fantastic. <laughs> right. So um, this weekend, lads, we're, we're off to a tournament, aren't we? It's our first, I think it's our first proper tournament because we're, we're all going. We're all going to be in one place. It's indoors. There's a bar. And uh, yes, and we're, we're, we're going away for the weekend. So uh, uh, sunny Stockport. Sunny Stockport. Uh, and uh, it's a tournament called Crossing Crescent, and I think there's going to be 32 or 34 players, so a good hall full of you know good few people. Um, and um, it's quite interesting because uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar, that the cross obviously are Christians, and the crescent are not Christians. <laughs> they're not necessarily Muslims, but they're not Christians. And uh, the, the split has been quite even between the two, uh, where people are choosing their lists. Uh, from the available lists and um there's a bit of kind of cross versus crescent thing going on uh, in the banter uh, on the teams and in the first two rounds uh if you're a crescent player you can't play another crescent which i think is quite interesting uh and then i hear you can't play any of your friends well on the basis i have no friends i will um, <laughs> i can play anybody uh and um i, I, I yes it's uh, Pete Entwistle will make it fair, I'm sure. Uh, and so, yeah, so we're off to that tournament. So, uh, because we will be doing a tournament podcast after the tournament, and uh, we will have an interview with the winner, uh, where I will be interviewing myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, we will... See, uh, first question, did all that practice play off, pay off, really? All that practice. So, we will interview the winner of the competition, if they're willing to interview and I feel they are suitably uh, outspoken to come on the podcast. Um, and we'll uh, hopefully it'll be one of us three. Um, so, but what I'm saying, so uh, so predictions for who's going to win, because we'll get it recorded now. The podcast listeners can hear it, and then we will report back in the next podcast. So, yeah. Well, right. that's, that's a question to spring on somebody when they weren't expecting it. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not you're not in court you're not an expert witness in court Richard. Shoot, uh, from the hip, man. shoot from the hip so i'm just looking at the runners and riders oh right my now. god <laughs> um look at look at the form book 
uh, who's... While, while, while Richard does that, I, I, I will, because because being a bit sad, I've already looked at the runners of riders and done it myself. Um, and joking aside, I, I, I think our very own Mr Duggins has a very good chance. <laughs> Not uh, happened to me today playing, playing Jason. Yeah, well, I was about to say, and the other person I would undoubtedly tip for the top is, uh, is, is Jason Brumer. Um, um, course. He's he's a good player, basically. Um, you know the whole chess thing, thinking three moves ahead. He he can uh, definitely think a number of moves ahead. Having played him, he, he always uh, you know I played him a couple of times, and I always felt I'm a bit on the back foot just because he is thinking further ahead than I can think ahead. Yeah. So it's you know the the saving grace playing him at the moment might be he's, he's not played that many games recently. Um, he, although, he's rusty, and he has a completely new army. That he arrived at my house last week and said, oh, "I'm using this kind of what it was." And I said, "Well, that's interesting because it, it's illegal. Uh, <laughs> you can't have those knights because the, the cut-off point is X." And he went, "Oh, that's a really rubbish army." And because he was a late entrant, they they gave him to the end of that day. So we rapidly put together a, a list. Um, and, and as everyone knows, I'm not going to say what's it. That would be that would be very rude. Away. <laughs> and um, and uh, and uh, and yes, we put together a list that he entered it. In fact, I sent it off thinking I'm going I'm to send this list off now. Uh, yeah, and it's uh, it's. I've said to him, I think it's a real Jason list. He a good list. I think that's more just to wind me up. But um, he, uh, yeah, I think it's a real Jason list because you've got the you, you know everyone knows what's in that Nick of Byzantine and it. So yeah, he, he is he. To be honest, he's the kind of guy who could turn up with a shopping or so. Um... Well, just because he's, he's really good at that sort of thing. So anyway, you know, I, if, in a way, I've sort of picked my top cross player, which is Jason, and my top crescent player, which is your good self. Uh, OK, I, I feel I've had enough time to peruse <laughs> the runners and riders. We've waffled so on I, enough rays. Come to decision. So I'm, I'm going to suggest amongst the crescent armies, I think uh, uh, Sid uh, might be a danger with the Almoravid because um, that's a good strong army. I'm very disappointed he didn't take the El Cid army. I think he should have been obliged to really. <laughs> I've never thought about that. Yeah, apparently someone else had already taken it, Richard. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine who that is. Um, and then in the cross armies, I'm going to go a bit off the wall, but I'm going to say watch out for Mr Cummins with the um, early medieval Danish with feudal German ally. He, I he, think that's a bit of a dark horse. It, it is. He, he, interesting. He's claimed, he's claimed that he's only taking that because he sent the wrong army list in. <laughs> he meant to send something else. He did tell that. me that he was taking a completely different list after yeah. the list he, he came and practised with was found to be wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. Just add, add to my to my tips as a, as a as a possible dark horse. Uh, watch out for Hammy amongst the Crescent. Oh yes, with, with Greater Seljuk. Okay, so I'll quick, before we carry on the discussion, I'll give you mine. Um, I think Sid. I'm going to agree on Sid because I think the Almoravid is a very army, and he's a better player than me. So he's got the same army as me, and he's a better player. So that probably means he's going to do well. Um, uh, and a dark horse in the Crescent is Stephen Steads, um, because <laughs> one track mind army. 
Yeah, it's a bit of shock and awe, let's put it that way. So, uh, and I think there's some which, nice... Which, which, for the listener who may not be looking at the army list, is Tuareg. Yes, yes, he's got straight-up Tuareg. So, Lots uh, of camels. Yeah, I would imagine. Uh, well, if, you I, go, I if you go to the list, I mean, you have yes, anyway, that's his list. Let's I don't think they give the game away. No, that doesn't. A lot of smelly camels. That does not give the game away. I'm, I'm uh, take a wild guess that he's going to take all the superior ones as well. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, and then I, I also, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm mentioning half the field now. So the other person I think, although I know Nick disagrees with it. I think Pete Riley's got a chance of coming podium for, and I'll tell you why, because he's a very, very, very good wargamer, and people don't know him very well on the Meg circuit. So I think he's got a very in the cross armies. Uh, I am going, Jason, um, and um, I, I'm not going to pick. Um, I'm not going to pick Paul because I think Paul. I, I'm not so sure that's his kind of list. So I don't know. I, it doesn't feel right to me. Um, and um, I've got to say, you know, Scottish John, he's, he's a bloody good player. Anglo-Danish is such a dull army. Yeah, I mean, I, I put two completely different lists together thinking what he might have in his list ready for the podcast tonight. I'm, I'm just going to say, I don't know what's in his list, and you can make a complete dross, wall of dross army that... You know, I think Lance took it to one of our, one of the global, you know, everyone play on the same day things. And, you know, you just got to wade through it. Or it, you can have a tough as old boots, smaller army. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I should point out, I'm not disagreeing with you on that. I'm just yeah. saying, I, yeah. I personally find it a very dull army. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if, so let's be honest, and I've said this to his face, Sid's take, takes a has taken a few odd uh, dull armies and done very well, so you know. No, actually, as a as a sort of the, the dark horse, the second choice in the cross armies, I would probably have to agree with you, on John. Yeah, yeah, he's he's, he's a good player, um, and I don't know who he gets to play, but if he if he gets to play Hunter a lot, then he's a good player. He always gets to play a good player, so in his practice games. Um, so that's my. Uh, I don't know if I've made any predictions. I've just mentioned loads of names. <laughs> I think you sort of predicted. Yeah. So basically, uh, predicted either Sid or. Well, I think we've all agreed on Jason, though, haven't we? Yeah. So I think uh, I think Sid, Jason, and Pete Riley for podium finishes. Can't believe I haven't mentioned anyone who's on the podcast team. I'm so disloyal. Yes. Well, I, 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 I pushed you up there. Yeah, you did. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> nasty. No, I, 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 that, that, those are my podium finish predictions. Sid, who did I say? <laughs> Sid, okay. Jason, and Pete Riley. Uh, no pressure, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not going to go any New players. We've got a load of new players that I certainly have never played against because I'm not. A, I never played Flames of War. So there's all the bun shot boys have come over. You know, some bloody good war gamers. Amongst those guys, um, they might be a bit uh, game time at the moment, but they'll all be really good in a few months. They'll be really good. Well, I mean, after playing um, Graham, uh, Graham Wilmot from the Bun Shop at Armageddon, I'd, I'd say yes, definitely. You know, just uh, yeah, when they've got when he's got a few more Meg games under his belt, he'll be he'll he'll be up there as a contender. And actually, for, from all three of us, uh, they're also more locals as well. So we've got an influx of players who can, you know, come to some of the event, the little events that we organise. Be nice. Always nice just to have a bit of a bit of rotation amongst the players. So well, it's good, to, good, to, good to see quite a wide range of armies. I'm hoping it will produce quite a lot of interesting matches. 
Yeah, no, I think I think it's a good, good, solid range. Um, I, I was especially surprised to see two people have taken early Russian. Uh, one, that, one of the that, one of, might, that might be more dangerous than you might think. But yeah, well, uh, one of them's Matt Haywood, who, who who is one of those masters of the quirky odd army, um, and plays them well. So you know, I, I'm not saying that's a daft army to take. It's just a ooh, unusual two and two of an unusual yeah. army, which oh, is a good sign. Good indeed. Yeah, but it's going to be very interesting to see who comes out. Okay. We will do a full podcast after the event and interview the winner. We will endeavour between uh, three of us talking to Pete and Jeff, who are the organisers. We'll endeavour to get all the lists uh, and have a list set on the. And we'll ask the players if anyone objects and get those up on the blog as well. Um, and then the only thing I've got to say, apart from good luck to you two the, uh, in the uh, forthcoming uh, event, although we can't play each other in the first two rounds, can we? No, we're all no we're indeed. All, we, all, we all took Crescent armies, didn't we? We're all we? on the golden sickle side of, or the green sickle side of the half right? Well, I, I tried to give the organisers a bit of a headache. By yeah, I've got no idea why you, t- you, you ended up, you could have been in either, couldn't you? But anyway, that- I, I think an Elsid for a Typher Andalusian army is probably Crescent, but you could. I thought if 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 the numbers didn't match, they could put slot me into whichever category yeah. they thought was best. So, um, yeah, um, yes, the Typher Andalusian is a bit of an oddball uh, because you've essentially got a. Um, Christian taking charge of an army for a for a, a, a Muslim state. A, um, a fascinating bit of history. Yeah, I love it. Love the movie. Um, I haven't read any book. Um, so the uh, historical source. <laughs> yeah. The final thing. Um, the final thing. Uh, well, I now know what happened to the Eagle of the Ninth because I watched the movie and some fella went all the way up to. I don't know, the far tip of Scotland and got it back and brought it all the way back. And <laughs> but, but the, the yeah. book, the book by Rosemary Sutcliffe was actually inspired by the find of an eagle at, Sil- at Silchester. And have you seen it? It looks nothing like any, it's just, it's just an owl or something. It's ridiculous. Well, it, it's missing its wings. The, the wings were detachable, but so it's, it's the body of an eagle without any wings. <laughs> When I saw it, it didn't look like an eagle to me. But anyway, that's for another day. Um, and then the only other thing is we are uh, we, we are working towards, as a team, although we haven't done much for a, a, a podcast episode about painting, basing, terrain, I think we should put a, a stake in the ground and say that at the end of the summer, we will bring on some of the luminary from the painting and basing and think of a way... Um, where we can make it an audio extravaganza, where we show spill the beans, as I think, I think a lot of absolutely great. Looking forward so, to it. On that high note, um, I will be arriving uh, at the hotel on Friday at five o'clock, and I will be in the bar by ten five. I shall see you there as soon as you can. I think Nick might be up there a bit cheeky early as well. Um, it's sort of the same sort of time I'm aiming for. Yes, yes, traffic yes, drive indeed. up south. Uh, I, have, I, was, I have a meeting in inverted commas in Manchester. <laughs> well, I, I was planning to be there and also <coughs> I, I was planning to bring a couple of board game what is interested in uh, uh, as if, it, if it doesn't get in the way of abusing Robin and drinking, I will <laughs> play a board game. <laughs>
Anyway, chaps, I shall see you on Friday. See you on Friday. We're all in the same hotel, I believe. And uh, best of luck at the tournament. Likewise. And, and to you. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for it, everyone. Cheers. Bye.